It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Hello, everybody, and thank you for joining me on this 50th episode of the show about the show. I took a little hiatus over the summer, so we are back here in the fall. We're going to be doing some podcasts, going to be having some great guests coming up. The guest I have today is uh, its a very fantastic guest. His name is Scott Brown. He is a descendant of Mordecai. Brown, the Major League Baseball Hall of Famer from the Dead Ball era. He's going to come on and talk about the website that he runs, the foundation that his family has, uh, that Mordecai Brown started and that has, his family has since taken over. And he's also going to talk about a couple of different books. One's called Three Finger, the Mordecai Brown Story, and Baseball in Pensacola. And he also has a PBS documentary about those as well. And without any further ado, we are going to bring on, we are going to bring Scott on. Hello, Scott, Devlin. How are, how are you this afternoon? Good. How are you? I'm, I'm doing well. Thanks. So let's talk about, let's talk about this a little bit. This is a, to me, it's really fascinating to kind of be able to talk to a descendant of a major league player who's not only a player, but a hall of famer. Tell me, how what how early in life did you find out that you know you were related to not just a baseball player but a Hall of Famer? Well, let me start out. It's, it's a little bit of a misnomer, and, and uh, people usually go this route by saying that we're descendants. Um, Mordecai actually had no children of his own. He and his mm-hmm. wife were childless, so it has been left up to nephews and cousins over the years to carry his fame and his legacy forward. So I guess if you can consider that a descendancy, it's the closest you're going to get from his direct line. But we hold him extremely close as if he were our own father or, or grandfather. Uh, I became aware of uh, I became aware of Mordecai uh, in my 20s, and um, he grew up in Indiana on the western edge of Indiana, Illinois line. I grew up in the Dayton, Cincinnati area, and uh, it was actually his father who had relocated that branch of the family prior to Mordecai being born. And when that happened, because of the time frame, we're talking the 1870s, early 1870s when he relocated to Indiana, away from the rest of the family who were in Kentucky and Virginia. And um, it basically separated the family. There wasn't the travel, of course, and connectivity that there is now. And so it was literally Mordecai Brown who brought two branches of the family back together. I became aware of him um, through some research, had no idea that he existed, had no idea that we were related. And when I started pulling together some of the, the life that he had led, I found living relatives that were at that time embarking on carrying forward his legacy and putting up a monument on the home farm in Indiana 
And we quickly rejoined and became a part of that forwarding on of the Mordecai Brown legacy. Yeah, absolutely. And when you so so you learn about this and what's your what's your initial reaction like was the was the family immediately kind of like okay, you know, we're related to or we you know, we hold him in very close esteem, we should do something or did you guys just kind of kind of have it thrust upon you like oh, you know, nobody's going to do it if we don't what was the what was the feeling in the family amongst people um, regarding his legacy and the foundation? Well, of course, the family in Indiana that were well aware of his history and his career were always on board to carry forward carry things forward, and together collectively, it wasn't one uh, over another. Um, there were brothers. I mean, excuse me. There were uh, well, there were brothers that were nephews of his. There were nieces. Um, you know, cousins and things in Indiana that really wanted to see uh, his fame carried forward into the next generations, not just because of what he did on the field, but because of what he did off the field. He was a natural mentor. He, he related well to others, and he helped others pass their own adversities and challenges to achieve great things in their lives. So they wanted to make sure that went forward. And so when our branch became aware of that in the late 80s, early 90s, um, you know, I, I have to say that, that those that I grew up with, as soon as they were aware, said, listen, how can we help? And so it, it, that was another rejoining or a unifying of the family. Now, a lot of, a lot of players in that early era, um, a lot of them were illiterate, Joe Jackson, Rube Waddell, guys like that. Um, what can you kind of tell us about Mordecai Brown's maybe education that he had or maybe his literacy? And why do you think mm-hmm. that maybe so many ball players of that era were illiterate? Was it just kind of a way to make money, or do you think that it was something else? In some cases, I mean, baseball was a way out uh, for some out of poverty and out of situations in life that didn't garner any you know, any kind of income that would sustain them. And, of course, baseball, while it did not have the large salaries it does today, it was a way to make money at something you were passionate about. Others, it became a job. For Mordecai, he had a basic education. He was schooled and schooled well at the little uh, one-room schoolhouse in Niceville, Indiana. But he fortunately had some terrific mentors in his life that, uh, established early on the need for always learning, always continuing education, which is something he preached t- till his dying day. And so Mordecai learned business. He learned business at an early age, the checker in the coal mines around Niceville. He learned to, he had several business ventures throughout his career and after his career. Um, he was a, um, he, he owned a Texaco gas station and, uh, in his last years upon this earth. Uh, but he was always adventurous in doing things going forward. He and Over, Orville Overall owned a gold mine, a literal gold mine in the Three Rivers area of California, <laughs> both Sacramento. So he always had these business sure. ventures. He ran, he ran for public office uh, at one time for the state of Indiana. So he wouldn't say – I wouldn't call him highly educated, but a continued lifelong learner he absolutely was. 
That comes from his writings. That comes from uh, folks that I, I have known in my life that knew him when they were young people and how he translated the need for knowing the world around you, having an education because the sport that you play may not carry you forward. You might not make the highest level, and you might get hurt and be out. So you need to, uh, you, you need to have not a plan, a plan B, but you need to have other avenues in your life that will take you take you on in the directions that you need to. And that was, that was his lifestyle. So he knew kind of from a very early age that education was going to be, and not just maybe education, but learning uh, was going to be kind of a lifelong thing. And it sounds like he wanted to pass that on. He was passionate about learning. You know, uh, one of his arch rivals, if you will, was of course, uh, Christy Mathewson off the field. They were good friends. And uh, I think you could probably venture to say from the history that has been written and known about Christy Matthewson that, you know, he was a very literate gentleman. He was uh, well-educated. And these are the kind of men that uh, Mordecai liked to hang around as well as just the rough and raw. He was, uh, he was a friend to all, but he was quite comfortable with those of, uh, let's say higher social standards. He could, he could hang with them as well as he could the guys on you know, on the farm or in the coal mines. Let's go. Uh, let's go back over a hundred years. Let's go to uh, April seventeenth, eighteen eighty-eight. Mordecai Brown is working uh, with some farm equipment, and what happened on that day, and how did it change his life? Well, this was uh, this was on his uncle's farm, and he was uh, a five-year-old, five years old. And um, as kids do, they're inquisitive. And his uncle was working a feed chopper, feed chopper making silage out of old corn stalks for the, for the cows for the winter. And what, what was happening was they had a, a chopping machine that would cut up these stalks. And young Mordecai stuck his hand under the working blade, and it removed most of the index finger on his right hand, what would become his pitching hand. And... Um, they called the doctor, who was a, was an ex Civil War field surgeon uh, in the area, who came out and wrapped it up and did the best that they could. And then, just a little under two weeks, uh, Mordecai and his older sister were playing with a pet rabbit in the yard, and Mordecai stumbled and uh, crunched his hand against the ground very hard and knew that he hurt it. But as, as small kids do, you know, he, he told his sister, he said, hey, uh, you know, let's not tell dad. I might get in trouble kind of thing. And uh, so when they came to unwrap the severed finger injury, they realized that his middle finger and his ring finger had been damaged in the fall as well. And it created this notable crook that he lived, lived with throughout life. And you can see in pictures of his hand. They considered re-breaking it and resetting it, but uh, decided not to cause the pain. So the reality was on his dominant playing hand, his pitching hand, he was missing his index finger. He had a crooked middle finger. He had a ring finger that did not have much feeling in it. So it was his thumb and his pinky, the only ones that were normal. And so it changed his life in the fact that he didn't have the use of his hand in the way that most budding pitchers would. And he, uh, he had a very odd delivery in his pitch. The ball, the ball would cur tur curve and swoop because it was sort of like an offset circle change. 
and um, and so it you know it, it gave him something that was uh, was unique at the time, but of course he didn't know that until later years. Now, and that's real interesting too because you talked about how he had the unusual delivery and how he kind of th- ended up throwing it as a circle yeah. change. It created an unusual amount of spin which also kind of gave him the devastating curveball or the devastating um, effect of the curveball. It did. And, you know, what, what happened, even, uh, you know, uh, his battery mates, catchers and first baseman had to get used to that because it didn't look like it was coming straight to them as soon as he released it. And so, you know, catchers like uh, – uh, Johnny Kling and uh, and Archer, you know, as as they got to be, you know, his his main catchers throughout his Cubs career, predominantly, you know, they knew what was going to happen with that ball when it left the hand of Mordecai Brown. It looked like it might, you know, sw- it it might uh, end up way off to the right, but it would land immediately in the glove. In fact, we've had several people over the years, including Fergie Jenkins, analyze. His his grip and things like that, and, and ask you know what do you what do you did that give him an advantage to his throw? And all the, that we've gotten back is he was basically a natural phenom. He had dead reckoning when it came to his come to came to his throw. Um, he had one of these one of these deliveries that he knew exactly where the ball was going before it hit, and he proved that throughout his life. I grew up with uh, with Fred Massey who was Mordecai's great nephew, and he knew Mordecai in the early part of his life. Fred Massey was a World War II veteran. And he said, you know, Uncle Mort would go out on the side of the yard to the smokehouse and stand 60 feet 6 inches, and he could knock knot holes out of the side of the barn. And he would tell you which one he was going to knock out. And, uh, you know, he had, this, he had this amazing ability to hit a target. He was that way with the baseball, and he was that way with the shotgun. It was just something that was in him. And it's really interesting when you think about it because, you know, we, we hear so many different stories about how, how the game was so different back then. And, you know, you hear about a lot about guys like Walter Johnson and Christy Mathewson. But then I think, you know, guys like Rube Waddell or, or Mordecai Threefinger Brown, granted they're both in the Hall of Fame and they were both incredible pitchers and very dominant, might have kind of maybe flat under the radar a little bit in terms of modern fans' knowledge, but he was just as good as those guys, if not better. He was. Um, you know, I, it's, sometimes I try to back off on saying that a little bit because I can sound a little prejudiced, uh, you know, being a part of the Brown family, but because I have studied his life and the life of others, you know, he was, he was an amazing man in his talent. One of my favorite stories is prior to a game at uh, Westside Grounds, uh, uh, Johnny, uh, Jimmy Archer, uh, Irishman, who was his battery mate for years, was warming him up before the game. And uh, Bill Clem, who was quite a well-known umpire at the time, uh, came, yeah. Out, yeah, came out to the field. And, and just jokingly bumped the catcher off of his mark. Just kind of, he just kind of, kind of pushed Archer over. And Archer looked up at him, and uh, and Clem reached into his pocket and pulled out a piece of paper about the size of a silver dollar and threw it down behind the plate. And he looked at he looked at uh, Archer and he goes, 
Brown doesn't need you for a target. All he needs is that piece of paper. And Jimmy Archer <laughs> said that was absolutely true. That's that's all he needed. He was just that way. And and you know when I, when I say that he was just as good as those gentlemen, let me get, let me throw some stats out for people that might be listening. He had a career record of 239 wins, an ERA lifetime of 2.06, 1375 strikeouts. He was a early part of or he was a part of the early Cubs dominance the 1907 and 1908 World Championship teams. He led the ML. The, he he led the National League in wins in 1909, and he was the leader of in all Major League Baseball in 1906. He was elected via the Veterans Committee in 1949, which is unfortunately a year after he passed away. You mentioned earlier that you. Um, you knew people that knew him or grew up with him or whatever. Did he ever mention, you know, possibly being in the Hall of Fame? Was that something that was important to him? Well, he was on – there was a, you know, there was an enormous ballot for the first um, inaugural class for the Hall of Fame. It was a huge, huge ballot. And if you go back and look at the names on it, he was one of them. And so, of course, they narrowed it down uh, to those that, that went in in that first class. And so I think he, you know, he probably was aware of that to some degree. That anything that I found, um, he never mentioned that. Uh, I don't know that that was a goal of his. For one thing, it was fairly new. Um, it didn't have the same clout that it did today. Certainly, it was an honor, but it wasn't the, you know, the years behind it like we have now, and realize that that is, you know, one of the ultimate goals in a career. But um, I'm sure he was aware of it, and I'm sure that he appreciated the fact that his, uh, you know, folks that he had played with and played against were making uh, making the hall because he lived a life in baseball, literally until his dying day. Um, you know, I have stories of, of, you know, him giving counsel to fellows like Jimmy Fox and Dizzy Dean in his latter years. They would come and seek him out in Terre Haute, and uh, the Tigers had spring training headquarters in Terre Haute, Indiana for a long time. And the, uh, the field that they played in was right across the street from his house. And he kept up with, you know, he kept up with that, you know, throughout his life. It was always a part of it. Now let's switch gears here a little bit. Um, you guys actually run a website called MordecaiBrown.com. I mentioned in mm -hmm. the intro, um, you particularly, have written a book called Three Finger, the Mordecai Brown story, as well as Baseball in Pensacola, and there's a PBS documentary yes. about that. Let's talk about the Mordecai Three Finger Brown story. Is that is that a biography? Is that an autobiography? Is it a little bit of both? What is it? It is mostly a biography. You know, fortunately, when we started writing, I say we uh, myself and Cindy Thompson, another family member who was also part of the foundation. Um, when we started researching for the book, fortunately there were people that were alive at that time that knew Mordecai during their lifetime. And so we had numerous, numerous firsthand stories, and wonderfully we had uh, news agents and news reporters from the areas that we were seeking information that did articles on even our writing and that we were seeking information. And so folks would send us letters, uh, contact us with stories, and so – it was tremendous. So I say it's absolutely a biography, but there's a lot of firsthand information in there. 
And I'm sure, as, as you know, Devil, you know, when, when a book comes out or a movie or a documentary, thing like that, you know, more information starts coming out of the woodwork. And we've considered uh, reprinting it again with some of the new information. Um, I had guys like uh, Carl Erskine come up to me in Indiana uh, years ago after the book was out and tell me his personal story about engaging Mordecai Brown when he was a young – when uh, Erskine was a young player. Things like that, yeah, that's just invaluable. You know, and so um, it, it definitely biography, but absolutely firsthand. Now, how did you? How did the PBS documentary come about? Well, I was uh, years later. Uh, I I currently live in Pensacola, Florida, and I'm not from here. I'm I'm from the Cincinnati Dayton area, and uh, after being here for a while, realized that this area of the country had a huge, huge baseball history and legacy, and it just, it just ran so deep, and that no one had ever put together anything that was uh, conclusive about the history. And so uh, it was a desire of mine to do that, and it just happened that at the same time our local PBS station was doing a follow-up series, uh, which was a tandem to Ken Burns' 10th inning, uh, his follow-up oh, sure. to uh, his baseball documentary, uh, they were doing a local, and the producer that was involved with it, uh, she and I had mutual friends who connected us, and wonderfully, they allowed me to write the script for the documentary concurrently with the book uh, to do all the interviews, and so it was a, a marriage made in heaven, and so we released those basically at the same time, and it was, just, it was a fantastic process. Absolutely. Now, you, obviously, the Mordecai Freefinger Brown Foundation is it, legacy foundation. I'm sorry, is very important to you. You guys do have a couple of really cool initiatives that you do. Let's talk about those. Let's let's start with the sure. Diamond Brotherhood. What's that all about? The Diamond Brotherhood really came from some of the things that Mordecai did in his lifetime after his career. He was a natural mentor. Um, he 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 just spent his time. Uh, trying to teach others how to overcome their own difficulties. He overcame the difficulty of, you know, a, a physical, uh, what could have been, um, you know, something that could have been devastating to a lesser man. And uh, the, the physical detriment that he had from his accident, he turned into a positive thing in his life, and he wanted to do with others. And so he was known for that, even in his career. Guys like you know John D. Rockefeller hired him to mentor his grandson, who was also Cyrus McCormack's grandson, uh, teach him how to pitch. The kid was in Princeton, and I've had numerous ball players talk to me about how you know he he influenced them, like Carl Erskine, and even others after his his uh, passing. So we've tried to carry that forward, and the Diamond Brotherhood initiative really is named for what Mordecai did with baseball. He was inclusive. He pulled people into the game and utilized the game's lessons to teach life skills, not only on the field but off the field. And so one of the things we've done with the Diamond Brotherhood in the past couple of years is we have established the ability through uh, funds that come to us through individuals and uh, uh, other uh, grants and things of that nature, we are investing in short season collegiate leagues across the United States. And whether we invest uh, equipment into them or educational materials, uh, we go to appearances. Some teams we work with a little closer than others, but we really see this as part of the, the evolution of the game 
And short season wood bat leagues are just taking this, this nation by storm, and they're doing a very good job to perpetuate the health and, and longevity of our grand old game. So we have determined that because of Mordecai's personality and character and ours to the Legacy Foundation, this is something we love to invest in, these young college guys that are, you know, they're cutting their teeth and they're traveling around the country when their seasons are over uh, from their uh, particular college, and, you know, they're doing what they can to make the game. And so we want to be a part of that, to see the game go forward and to see the, the, the positive forward motion in these young lives go forward. So it, it, it's a, kind of a lot of, you know, maybe I guess what people would call now independent ball, I guess you can say. It's, it, it is independent, but the leagues are actually, most of them, backed in some manner by MLB. Um, okay. A good portion of them are, are, are not for profit, but there are a few that are for profit. There are some larger leagues that might have, you know, 12 different teams playing in them. There's a, a one league that we're involved in in Central Florida that only has six in a very small, tight area. And they have no affiliation, but they are amateur. So a guy that comes that gets drafted for the that short season, you know, 50, 60 games uh, during the summer, um, he's going to be drafted out of his uh, college. Maybe say a guy from UCLA, UCLA may get to play right along somebody that's that's just been a part of University of Alabama or University of Connecticut, and they get to you know play with different levels of players. They get to see, they get to the use of wood bats, which is wonderful, you know, uh, to get that feel again in their, in their bones. And uh, but they've they're, they've got to have played one season of amateur college ball and not have graduated yet. So these guys are not getting paid, but they're being drafted. They're usually put up in uh, local families' homes. I mean, this is this is the raw baseball of field of dreams type of thing. This, this is, this is the moonlight Graham type of baseball. It is wonderful to see and very good ball. That's what we need more of. Absolutely. Let's move on to the other initiative. Um, I think it's really neat. The name of this initiative, the seventh and cherry publishing initiative. Talk to me about, first of all, how it got that name and then what the initiative is all about. Sure. Seventh and Cherry uh, are the cross streets where Mordecai's Texaco gas station was in the 30s and 40s. And it, from those that uh, had the ability to see that gas station, say that it was a mecca for baseball, uh, there was always something going on. I had a young man tell me one time, this is a little bit different than what you're asking for, but I love this story. I was doing a book signing and, and doing a television program just outside of Terre Haute years ago. And uh, during the book signing, this very elderly gentleman came up to me, and uh, he was with his caretaker. He was shuffling around, and she introduced him to me, and he said, Sir, he said, I don't know how many more days I've got up on this earth. He said, but I wanted to meet a member of the Brown family before I died. So, you know, to honor this man, I got up and walked around the table, and I said, Sir, thank you for coming out. And he goes, No, 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 you don't understand. He said, When I was 16 years old, Mr. Mordecai Brown hired me to clean up around his gas station, and he said he was the most wonderful gentleman I've ever had the privilege of knowing. He taught me about the game, and he taught me about life, and he said I had two jobs. I had to keep the gas station clean inside and out, and I always had to keep a catcher's mitt. He said because when he wanted to throw a little bit, he said we'd go out back. He said let me tell you something. Mordecai Brown at 70 years old could still break a curveball. 
And so there was just this there, there there was just this this you know specialness about the corner of Seventh and Cherry. So we chose that with uh, for the name of our publishing company, which as you said is an initiative out of the Mordecai Brown Legacy Foundation. And our our goal is to help young authors, young graphic artists, and illustrators achieve their dreams. Mordecai was always about helping others achieve their dreams. So because myself and a couple of other the board members have, are published authors, uh, we want to see young people that maybe are under-resourced, uh, underserved, be able to reach their dreams where they need coaching in their writing process or helping them get published and being on the shelf. And we like to walk along that process as, uh, as much as we can. It's, it's our newest initiative, so we don't have a lot of years under our belt with it, but we've got a lot of experience that we can lend to young people who want to follow after this this uh, this dream in their life, and that is not only the written the written word in baseball biography, but it might be something that they want to do that's of interest to them. We're also I've got a, a couple of fellows on my advisory committee that are Disney and uh, Marvel comic artists uh, who are willing to lend their insight to young graphic artists get started, and it's just a it's a great thing to be able to to reach out of the very nature of who Mordecai Brown was. Absolutely. Now, myself um, and a lot of my listeners are collectors, and I would be remiss if I didn't sneak one of these questions (laughs) in. Do you or anybody in your family, do you guys have any of his either memorabilia, his letters, his autographs, his pictures? What do you guys have in terms that, that connects you directly to him well, I tell you that is probably one of the most asked questions that we receive. And um, back when you know when Mordecai was playing, memorabilia, memorabilia wasn't as highly sought after as it is today. Now, I'm not saying that there weren't collectors and lovers of baseball memorabilia like you and I, because absolutely that's just human nature. But it didn't have the market that it did. So, you know, the the little bit that's left from his, uh, his career is known because it is small. For instance, um, I know of one pair of, of uni- uh, one, one pair of uniform pants that are still in existence that were, that were his and cut down for a bat boy. Um, most of what was left that was his personal uh, cleats, his watch fob, which had his three awards from the, uh, the Chicago Cubs. They didn't have rings back, in, back then. They did watch fobs. Um, and a couple other things are at the Hall of Fame, which is exactly where they should be. And um, the little the little bit that was left over as far as autographs, you know, people have those throughout. He was always, always open to autographs. So there's actually a number of them out there. I see them frequently. As far as pictures, family. We have we've all collected over the years, and uh, we're the. The foundation is the actual owner now of most of the imagery of Mordecai Brown. Um, he, we, we license him to be used, um, you know, on baseball cards currently, either with, you know, Panini or others are doing things. We've licensed microbreweries. We've licensed Sony PlayStation. The last, um, the last licensing we did just most recently was with the Chicago Cubs and the Ricketts family. In the revamping of Wrigleyville, they built a wonderful hotel across from the from the ball field called the Zachary Hotel, and they put a beautiful two-story uh, whiskey and grill attached to it, and their desire was to name it Mordecai. 
So we licensed his name back to the Chicago Cubs, or rather the Ricketts family, to be able to utilize that. And Tom Ricketts himself could not be more ecstatic. He told me, he said, we are thrilled to be able to use that name in particular of all the Cubs and Cubs history to be able to showcase him outside of uh, Wrigley Field. And so uh, pictures, you know, we, we, we keep a lot throughout the foundation and we license those to people that are in need of, of use for books and other things. Absolutely. Scott, we're running out of time. You've been more than you've been more than gracious to come on the show. I want to give you the last minute or so here to promote what you got going on. Where tell tell people about the website, where they can get the books, um, if they can find the documentary online and the last two minutes are yours. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I'd ask everybody to go and check out the life and legacy of Mordecai Brown through the website, the only website dedicated completely to him through the Mordecai Brown Legacy Foundation, and it is MordecaiBrown.com. We have created this for you, the fans, friends, and family of the great Mordecai Three Finger Brown. So go on and join. If you'd like to be a part of any of our initiatives, we welcome you to do that. If you would like the book Three Finger, the Mordecai Brown story, Baseball in Pensacola or Baseball in Pensacola the documentary. Most can be found on Amazon or Barnes and Noble or other your major bookshops online. You guys, this has been an unbelievable episode. We learned so much about a, just an unbelievable, not only Hall of Fame pitcher, but it sounds like a Hall of Fame person. And you guys have done amazing work keeping his legacy alive, growing and always giving back and helping others. Scott, I cannot thank you enough for coming on the show. Thank you so very much. And everybody, make sure you guys go out and visit the – thank you. Make sure you go out and visit the MordecaiBrown.com website. Like Scott said, you can also pick up the book Three Finger Brown – Three Finger, the Mordecai Brown Story on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and where all major bookstores are sold. Thanks again, Scott. I can't appreciate it. We'll talk to you soon. Take care. Keep swinging for the fence. (laughs) You too, thanks. All right, ladies and gentlemen, what a great interview that was. I mean, you can – it's not often that, you know, doing this podcast, you know, most of the time I interview former players. So they're able to give me kind of a firsthand account of what – of what their career was, you know. So they're able to tell me directly, I felt this, I did this, I did that. And when you're able to talk to a relative of a former player, it's a completely different thing. But you can tell that his entire family, the the cousins and great cousins and nieces and nephews and everybody working towards the foundation, you can tell that they're really passionate about not only the foundation, but also keeping his legacy alive, what he stood for in life. Uh, making sure the game of baseball progresses, like Scott talked about um, with his two, with the two initiatives they have, also with the graphic design, and just making sure that we give back, because that's really what baseball is all about. It, it, baseball is not just a sport. You know, these guys aren't just athletes; they're people too. And you see a lot of that with the different awards that Major League Baseball does in terms of the Roberto Clemente Award and things like that. So. Ladies and gentlemen, I cannot thank my guest, Scott Brown, enough. Again, MordecaiBrown.com. Go get it. Go visit Amazon. Find the Mordecai Three-Finger Brown book on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and wherever books are sold. 
you know, honestly, I could have had Scott on for another half an hour. I had so many more questions, and I had some stories I wanted to get, but maybe we can get them on again in the future. But what a great insight into a dead ball era Hall of Fame pitcher, and more importantly, a Hall of Fame person. That concludes episode 50 of the show about the show. Thank you guys very much. I will be back Saturday with an all-new, brand-new episode, episode 51. First episode of season two, it's going to be episode 51. I'm going to have Todd Waddell on, and if that name sounds familiar, it's because he, too, is a relative of a dead ball era pitcher named Rube Waddell, and we're going to go over some of Rube's career. We're going to talk about how we're going to talk about his legacy as well as Todd's um, kind of carrying on Rube's legacy. We're also going to get into a lot of um, real kind of deep, heavy discussion. Um, You know, a lot of these episodes, I try to keep them light, but Todd has requested that we give him a chance to talk about um, some kind of – some kind of substance abuse issues that Mordecai Three Finger Brown had, or not, I'm sorry, not Mordecai Three Finger Brown, that Rube Waddell had, and other things um, that impacted Rube. So that is Saturday's episode. Really looking forward to it. Again, I cannot thank Scott Brown enough. Thank you guys very much for listening. As always, we'll see you down the road in podcast land. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.